Hi, I'm Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the Veterans Breakfast Club on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Welcome to VBC's now fifth episode of Lioness, the origin story. This is a special eight-part podcast where Lioness vets and those who know the history of Lioness program dive into that history along with the FETS female engagement teams and leading into the cultural support teams. We have a very exciting episode planned for you today. Joining me again are filmmaker and writer Daria Summers and Army veteran Shannon Morgan. In 2008, filmmaker and writer Daria Summers, along with her filmmaking colleague Meg McClagan, released Lioness, a documentary that revealed the history of a group of women support soldiers who went to Iraq in 2003 as mechanics, clerks, and engineers, but ended up serving as the original Lioness soldiers. Although the Lioness's mission was to defuse tensions with Iraqi women and children, they fought in some of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq War. Shannon Morgan was a member of that original group of Lioness soldiers, an army mechanic from Mena, Arkansas. She served in Ramadi from 2003 to 2004. During the 2004 battle for Ramadi, she was one of a group of army Lioness soldiers attached to the two former Marines during house-to-house -house searches. That put her at the center of some of the fiercest street fighting of the war. Uh, I am very honored uh, to be continuing this podcast with you all. And Daria, we have a special guest. I'd love to hand it off to you. Well, thank you very much, Sean, and hello to all our listeners. At this midway point in our podcast, episode five, as Sean mentioned, we have the perfect guest to help us put in perspective the hot potato position women serving in Iraq and Afghanistan found themselves in, due in large part to the disconnect between the boots on the ground reality and political resistance back home to giving women, women full equality in the services. Joining us today is retired Navy Captain Lori Manning, who is literally the expert on policies and laws governing women's participation in the U.S. military. She played a critical role during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict, providing background and history on, on the issues concerning women in the military to Congress. She was right there as Congress and top military leaders confronted the uncomfortable reality that Army and Marine women were, in order to achieve the mission, being asked to operate outside the policies that prohibited women from direct ground combat. After more than 25 years in the Navy, Lori served as director of the Women in the Military Project at the Women's Research and Educational Institute, and more recently as the director of government operations for the Service Women's Action Network, where she currently sits on the board. She's been awarded the Legion of Merit, Meritorious Service Medal, three awards, Navy Commendation Medal, Navy Unit Commendation Ribbon, Meritorious Ribbon, and National Defense Medal. And we're also welcoming back Shannon. Hi, Shannon. So we wanted to, uh, at this point, um, our, our in episode four, our guest was, uh, we had two uh, women Marines on. One of them uh, was is a retired, she retired as a Colonel after 28 years in service, uh, Maria Marte. And the other is uh, Colonel Maria Palata, MJ, who is, teaches at the United States Naval Academy. And we listened to some fascinating stories, one of which was in 2004, um, Captain Marte at the time was in Afghanistan, where she was, she and women uh, in her unit were being sent outside the wire for three to four weeks at a time. And uh, 
not in in some instances not really knowing how long they'd be gone, which was a very sort of loose interpretation of the rules at that time. And so they would just go out with the Marines and and they would live and go on their missions together. But then in 2005, there was, I think it was on June 24th, the Marines were um, delivering each day to a Fallujah checkpoint from a more secure uh, base female Marines to act as searchers, but they wouldn't let them overnight with the Marines, so they had to send them back and forth each day. And there was a terrible bombing, and um, four four women Marines were killed. It may have been three Marines and three women Marines and one sailor, but and at least 11 were seriously injured. And that was all because of this disconnect about what to do with women. And I was wondering, are you familiar with that incident? Because it seems oh, yes. like, yeah, women are still sort of like, you know, are we in? Are we out? What can we do? What can't we do? Uh, yes, I'm very familiar with that. It was a, uh, an unnecessary tragedy, I think. And the disconnect was that people on the ground and the, the women Marines you mentioned first were in Afghanistan these other women who were killed were in Iraq. The policy which came about in 1994 that said women could not be assigned to any unit below the, I think it was the brigade level that had a combat mission uh, was interfering with the on the ground commanders uh, who were not mostly generals. They might be at the colonel or lieutenant colonel level or sometimes down at the platoon level. Without women to work with the Iraqi or Afghani women, or sometimes the only woman available is uh, say a medic uh, had to go. It was decisions they made locally to sort of ignore the national position and do what had to be done in the instant. So the Marines in Iraqi, again, in Iraq, in Fallujah, made a decision that the women had to be pulled back every night, while other Marines fighting different battles in Afghanistan let them go out for three or four weeks or longer. And it's because there was no instruction coming to these poor commanders from the national level. So they had to just sort of make up their own rules. And one of the first rules that, that sort of was a rule of thumb, it was never officially uh, talked about, was to take that word can't be assigned to mean that they can't be given person, uh, excuse me, uh, they can't be given permanent change of duty orders to a unit with a combat assignment, but they could be attached to that unit for nobody knew how much time. So every, every commander sort of made it up on his own uh, made his own decision on it. And they were all his decisions at that time. So you have a Marine commander in Afghanistan letting people go out for three, four weeks and, and actually stay with and sleep next to or beside the infantry. And you have the same Marine Corps, but a different country and a different leader deciding no, that those women couldn't spend the night sleeping in their sleeping bags on the ground, they had to come back. 
and these poor guys had no guidance from above. They were doing what had to be done. And because of the politics surrounding this, the Washington DC level people did not want to make a decision uh, that said, okay, go ahead and let the women do what they have to do because they got in trouble with, they would get in trouble with Congress. And, and, they, and there was a big commotion in, com in Congress about it when, when it started coming out. So yes, and the poor women who were going out there were caught being sent on combat missions without much training, without proper equipment, and with people not even keeping records that they had been out there. There's an ambiguity in what you've described that seems like it's the antithesis of what you would want in the military. Because in training and preparedness, you know, things have to be understood. What's the mission? What do you do? What can you do? How are we going to do it? And by having this ambiguity, not to, I mean, it's not about, um, you know, critiquing or finding blame with any of the lower level officers, but it's more of a lesson, right, in what goes wrong when there's not clarity. Right. And also, even if there was clarity in this, women can't go on combat missions, the reality was that they had to. Right. And, and thus the so ambiguity. there would, yeah, just the ambiguity. And the, uh, the leaders in Iraq and Afghanistan did what needed doing, but it was a very dangerous situation for the women, but also for the men that they were uh, working with uh, because right. of uh, the differences in training or, and I know Shannon has the story about the differences of army people working with Marines when you're in a combat situation uh, without knowing that each other's signals and things. So yeah, it's, it's necessary and it's dangerous. And it was, uh, I think it was lily livered on the part of the, uh, the, the military commanders back home to not tell Congress, we got to do this and we've got to take, take care to make sure the women who go have training, that VA knows they've gone when they come back, that there are records of what they were attached to because it protects not only the women, but the men they're having to serve with. Absolutely. And another um, interesting aspect of this, which actually you're the one uh, who can speak to this. So if you use the, um, that the June 24th, 2005 incident with the uh, Marines returning from, or, or, or being uh, in the military convoy, going back and forth to the Fallujah checkpoint, when that happened, like, what is the conversation like back in Washington between Congress and the military leaders? Are they addressing it? Are they confronting it? Are they, what's the situation? They ignored it. They ignored it. They were wow. sorry that the, that the people were killed, but Congress would, could point at the, now Congress is not a unified body, but there were people who did not like the idea of women in the military who could point out and say, the policy says you can't do this. Um, and the military people could, could have pointed back, we have to do this. But they just avoided it. They, it was a tragedy. It was one of those things that happened. Um, 
and whether or not it could have been avoided was that question simply ignored. That's kind of stunning. Isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm only quiet because it's uh, stunning because it, I remember, you know, it being reported, uh, you know, the reports are still available and oh, sure. it was like, wow, you know, what happened and um, just feels like something that could have been avoided. Was there anyone back home speaking up, like trying to get um, people to listen within the oh, services? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, not, not so much within the services. Um, well, but there are groups like mine, the Women's Research and Education Institute, talking with Congress and saying, hey, this is a problem. And I know there were individual commanders within the Army and the Marine Corps, too, who kept trying to get the attention of their senior bosses. These were usually commanders on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan who have to deal with the problem and who came up with their own solutions um, individually. And, and even those on the ground weren't really coordinated. Um, and when they tried to get the attention or filed the reports saying what they were doing, the generals back home didn't want to touch it. It, it was a very uh, touchy issue. It was politically a uh, hot, hot potato, if you, if you will. Um, and, and nobody wanted to take the flack for it. And because of that, um, and Shannon, I'm sure that you uh, can uh, relate to this, women were uh, left in this kind of nebulous status uh, where who, depending on who was your superior, who you were taking orders from, it could you could go one way or the other, depending on, um, I think in one of our previous guests said whether they were doing the spirit of the law or the letter of the law, which was really a policy backed by law. It, and it's hard, it's hard to know which direction to go when your orders exist, but they don't exist so to speak. Um, it's hard to know how to react and adapt to a situation. Um, all those times were brand new and females entering into frontline combat. Uh, I, I think a lot of people in DC didn't know what to do. Um, but as far as boots on the ground, us over there, we knew if they didn't make some decisions, there were going to be a lot of females put at even more risk than than what that what needed to be at the time. Well, this is a this is something I want to ask you, Shannon. Then were you um, and do you think um, other women who were serving as lionesses were you aware of all of of sort of the political situation, or were you aware at the time that you what you were doing was all sort of being measured against this combat exclusion policy and how far to the left or the right you were being ordered to go? Uh, I mean, in some ways, yes. I mean, because uh, deep down, we knew that we were in a gray area that hadn't been addressed yet. So we knew that 
we were operating within different scopes of um, what your normal female assignments would be. Um, but as far as the political aspect of it, no, it's, it's really hard because uh, it was the beginning of the war. Um, there weren't a lot of comms up and we didn't really have TVs and things like that to, to watch. And I remember ending up on a Marine base and uh, I actually seen uh, TV footage of uh, the White House secretary claiming that you know, these rumors of females in frontline combat was just rumors. And I thought to myself, wow. So even even if one of us does die over here, they're just gonna cover it up like it never existed. And I was like, well, is it gonna take one of us dying for policy change to come uh, to be fully enacted and for them to actually give us the proper training and equipment like our male counterparts? Um, I always feared that, and and the loss of those Marines, <clears throat> as you speak of, was uh, was just that. That's exactly what happened. Well, yes, um, but Lori, according to you, even even that incident, which I just remember the headlines, and it just it just caught everyone's attention, at least in the public. Even that wasn't enough make people respond with you know uh, who could who could look at the change the policy right because the policy wasn't changed for a number of years uh after that yeah. happened um and what what happened was people that did not want women in the military within congress and and some of the think tanks and those sorts of things used the death of those women marines to say see we've got to get them all out of there because they shouldn't be in wow. combat. Uh, that argument was made. This wouldn't happen if you hadn't done that. And really, one of the reasons that the Army women were involved with the Marines is because the Marine Corps itself had not sent very many women over to Iraq and Afghanistan at that time. They didn't have women of their own, so they had to borrow some from the Army uh, over there. So the, even between the services, the Army was making much better use of its women uh, than the Marines were, who, who were sort of keeping them back in the, uh, out, of, out of the theater of war altogether. Even though the Marines over there hey, knew, hey, you know, we're borrowing women from the army because we don't have any of our own uh, who, who know how to fight as Marines, as, a, as opposed to uh, the army women who came out without knowing some of the who were out there on, in battle without knowing some of the standard Marine Corps procedures because nobody had even thought to tell them. Um, and it was Nobody not, had uh, imagined. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So it was known, but what you had happen um, in the wake of those women being killed was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Duncan Hunter, adding a provision to the National Defense Authorization Act, which deals with military policy uh, on a Friday night uh, that, and the language, and I don't remember the exact wording of the language, would have required most of the services, all the services really, to pull most of the women out of Iraq and Afghanistan, which would have been a disaster. I mean, we, you know, back in those days, 
it wasn't like World War II where you had mostly only a few very junior women and maybe you could get away with removing them. By this time, there were women generals there. There were very skilled enlisted women there who were professional at their jobs at every level of the chain of command and lots of them. If you had suddenly pulled them out, you would have been short about uh, 10 or 15% of, of your forces and some of the skills you needed and some of the leaders you needed, both on the enlisted and the officer side. And he, he just did it on a Friday night and um, without telling DOD he was putting it in there and the vote was scheduled for the following week. And it took, as I understand that intervention from the White House to get him to pull that out of the NDA. So that was the, that was the uh, battle that was going on back in DC is, not change, let more women go, but get them all out of there. It was uh, one of those um, really uh, two different versions of what we ought to be doing uh, in the political arena. Was that in 2005? Yeah, that was the, it was the NDAA for 2005. So it might've been in 2004. It was whenever they were having the debates on that. Okay, so this was even prior to the uh, tragedy of the, for the searchers who were traveling um, outside of Fallujah? Um, it could have been. I, I'm not, like I said, I'm not sure when exactly that debate happened, but it was in the 2004-05 timeframe. The whole debate is in the congressional record. What's interesting to me, if you, at this, given what you've described Lori, and also Shannon, what you've described with your experiences, like, you know, watching a White House press conference saying, oh, yeah, women aren't doing anything, <laughs> um, is that in 2005, that's the date given when both the Marines and the Army say they formalized and began the training for their own lioness programs. And I just, it's just, there's an irony there because women still remained in this ambiguous state. Um, Congress wouldn't recognize it, but the army and the Marines went ahead and formalized their own lioness programs. And, I think this is where things just out of necessity started to split. Does yes, that sound and, true? and there was also um, in the uh, NDAA for that year after they, uh, uh, I'm thinking now it was the 2006 and bill, the bill that, that was going to affect starting that would go to effect starting in October 2005, not the 2005 appropriations bill. After um, Duncan Hunter was told to back down, what they did was offer a compromise in which there was a study made about what women were doing over in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they began to talk about um, the army or the, not the army, the military having to notify Congress when they made changes to ground combat exclusion policy, um, which hadn't been necessary before that. The, the ground combat exclusion policy that we've been talking about 
uh, dated back to uh, 1994, and it was based on the outcomes of the Gulf War and what had happened in the Gulf War. And it opened a lot more jobs to women, but it put that business about uh, cannot be assigned to ground combat units with, um, in there. And so it, it, they loosened things up a little in the 2006 NDAA. Um, but that particular provision, um, it didn't really solve the problem because um, they were talking about the policy uh, at the big level, not about what individual commanders were doing with it in, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan, if, if that makes sense. They were talking about decisions made at the DC level had to be reported to Congress, not choices that uh, a captain or a colonel made uh, uh, because it was expeditious to make, uh, to get his mission done in Iraq or Afghanistan. No, I, 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 I understand what you're saying. And it, it was almost like they were, instead of dealing with the big picture problem, they were tinkering on some of the details. Uh, yeah, um, and still avoiding the big issue. There was an elephant in the room and they were worrying about the mice. Right, <laughs> Very. that's a very good way of putting it. Um, because, I mean, it can, this, I guess by 2005, the, the lioness programs from both the army and the Marines were formalized and there was some supposedly additional training. I know there was some at Camp Pendleton and I know there was some uh, in the army as well. But then in 2009, without anything having changed, the Marine Corps created female engagement teams and their missions went beyond the lioness teams because they not only searched, right, but they ran medical clinics, distributed medicine, humanitarian aid. This was mostly, I guess, in Afghanistan. They were engaging in with women and children in their homes, but again, they were attached to combat units, or they were yeah. accompanied combat units, whatever you want to say. Um, and then they were pulled back and forth. I mean, depending on who, I guess, who was suddenly concerned. Yes, and and who the local commander was, because they each sort of made their own choices. And the when the FETs came along. I, I think that for the most part, they actually did that as their assigned job. The lionesses were still, particularly in the beginning, were still doing their day job and then going on these raids at night. Um, the FETs, I, it was more of a full-time job, I think. And it was pretty much limited to Afghanistan, as I understand it. And also some of our allies began doing the same thing, the Australians and the British. And I've heard also maybe um, some of the American civilians operated over there like the idea and, and maybe some of the intelligence agencies picked up doing it also. But they it wasn't broadcast much. Wow. But it, again, all of this was done and the combat exclusion policy still remained in place. We know it didn't get repealed until 2013, but um, it, I mean, even though these programs had become formalized on some level, it didn't actually resolve the ambiguity. No, and it, it and they were usually described as programs, uh, more on, as an, uh, a searching program or an intelligence gathering program, because um, 
the Iraqi and Afghani women would talk to the women fets or the lionesses or later the cultural support teams, but so would the men. And sometimes a lot of the uh, male leaders would tell, tell um, things to the women that they wouldn't tell to the men. So it, was, it became a very good intelligence gathering um, operation as well as uh, keeping things calm when there were searches and things because the women could be searched by a wom uh, another woman. The women and children could be uh, protected in, in some ways uh, by being put with the women uh, on the fets and that sort of thing. But it, it, it evolved from beyond searching into a very good intelligence gathering thing. Um, it tended to be the women in a, in a village who knew, for instance, what sort of projects were needed. Did they need a new well? Did they need uh, you know, health care of some sort? And that we often used projects in these villages to, to win friends. And the women were very good at finding out what was really needed in each place. So it became an intel operation in many ways. That, that's so interesting um, because Shannon, if that's what um, Pearl Brinkley was talking about in terms of what on, on, on an initial level, you and the original team lionesses were doing as well. Absolutely. Well, not every mission was boots on the ground combat mission. Um, when we would go out with our army county uh, counterparts. Um, I mean, most of that was knock and talks or meet and greets. Um, and that was, sometimes that was the mission to just solely go out and find what that community needed from us, um, i.e. Uh, school equipment and books and things for the children or something like uh, Lori speaking to a new well uh, or maybe have a building rebuilt or something and something to that effect. Um, a lot of those times, I'm going to say, in, in my experience, we actually gathered more intelligence out of common and, 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 and not scary situations. We actually gathered more intelligence that way. They were more forthcoming. It's funny how if your house isn't being raided in the middle of the night, how you're more willing to talk. <laughs> no, um, so I, I mean, I, I like, I like hearing those stories because it kind of connects. Even though the female engagement teams, you know, had a, a more sort of integrated mission, and they uh, sort of thought out about connecting um, uh, medics with them and 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 supplying medicines, which is. Um, but you can see how it all evolved out of the original Lioness mission. And oh, I, absolutely. I like, yeah, I like, Lori, I like your, your, the, the mention that, because I just want to revisit it for a second. The Afghan men often ended up feeling more comfortable speaking with members of the female engagement team. Yes, um, I, the, the, the FETs I've talked to and some of the cultural support team people I've talked to um, mentioned that to me more than once over the years. And um, 
they, they were sort of fascinated by the idea of women in uniforms, military women. It's not something they saw much in their own, in their own uh, cultures at that particular time, at least. And they, they just found, a lot of the guys were just sort of uh, entranced by the whole idea and um, maybe wanted to show off a little bit. Who knows? No, absolutely. Well, so I'm wondering, um, Lori, if you could then lead us from, so you had the female engagement team. Mm -hmm. How did we get to cultural support teams? Well, cultural support teams, uh, you know, the, the female engagement teams were going out with Army and, and Marine normal units. The cultural support teams really were a special ops project. Uh, Army Rangers, Green Berets, Delta people, uh, Navy SEALs. And I think it was a, an Army special ops thing in, in particular, uh, but with the Marines too. And they, they went through six or seven weeks of training at Fort Bragg uh, on weapons, weapons handling, uh, on some language stuff, on you know, cultural matters. But they traveled with the special ops people in particular, as opposed to just any old uh, unit. And my, what I've heard is that the Army uh, special ops were much more welcoming to the women than maybe the Navy SEALs. And that uh -huh. um, the effect of the cultural supports team, how effective they were, kind of depended on how much the men in whatever special ops unit they were working with let them let the women merge in and be part of the unit, as opposed to oh, what do we need those people for? Why are they sending us these people? Um, and and they, uh, as I said, they traveled with special forces, doing much the same. Sometimes they got in um, firefights, but they were doing much the same kind of work that the Fets did or the Lionesses did, um, but with, as I said, with the special ops. What I've heard, because um, again, I just, it, it's as much as this evolves and it sort of seems that if you look at the arc of the uh, conquest in Iraq and Afghanistan, because I guess the, um, the female engagement teams really began in around 2009, 2010 in Afghanistan. And then in 2010, this is according to what I've gleaned from different papers and things that have been written on it. Um, around 2010, they started to develop the cultural support teams and send them out. Mm -hmm. So you're having this evolution, this very specific kind of evolution. And I know that just to be clear, we recognize that women were also doing other things, whether they were helicopter pilots and, and sort of pushing the envelope in other aspects as well. It, and this wasn't the only, but there is a through line in this, um, in this uh, narrative where again, they're just kind of like ex expanding from this, from where Shannon started out into kind of a more sophisticated, to some extent, developed program by the time you get to the cultural support teams. But nevertheless, politically, back in Congress, you're still in, they're still operating under this cloud of ambiguity. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because I, I've heard and I've actually uh, listened to cultural support team members 
speak about how after returning, they still, like you, Shannon, had trouble getting services that mm -hmm. they needed from the VA because technically they couldn't claim uh, on their DD-214 being in combat. And it's, it's still an issue 20 years later, Daria. It blows my mind that I can go to the VA and have a conversation with a male counterpart and especially being in a PTSD group um, and then look at you and say, what the hell are you talking about? Females in frontline combat. I still to this day get laughed out of some rooms. Um, and I have been saying since 2008 or nine, when we went to the Hill, Daria, I have been saying and asking, why can we not have something put in their service record in our DD-214s that say you were part of a Lioness program? That right there will bump you up with the VA instantly. I mean, it's one thing we have to go out there and we have to be a part of these engagement teams and, and scream and holler, hey, we're out here, we're doing this. And then you have to go to the VA and you have to prove it yet again. I mean, I don't understand why it's a simple quick fix if you ask me if we could start enforcing something when we exit the military, if it's put in our DD-214, that's half the freaking battle right there when you go to try to get your benefits from the VA. It's, it's too easy. Shannon is, is precisely right. And uh, I went on some of those tours with some of the lionesses to Congress to talk about this. And VA was given instructions, you got to do this, but big VA and getting the word down to the regions that make the veter veterans determinations and to each of the local uh, offices where those are made, it, it's like playing grapevine as a child. It, the, what is put out by big VA never gets down to the people that are making the decisions. And who's hurt? The same women who were put out there uh, in combat without proper training are now not getting credit for it because their commands never made a, an entry in their records saying, oh, you know, she was a uh, team lioness and it's, it's, it's a crime. Yeah. No, it definitely is because the, these women, like any of the women serving, like any of the men serving, by the very fact that they were serving, were putting their lives on the line. So. Yeah, and, and, and one thing that never comes through when we talk about what was forbidden by the old policies, uh, that women couldn't be assigned to units with a combat mission or have a combat occupation, the law has never forbade or the policy has never said women can't be in combat. They could be in combat under those policies. They just couldn't have the training and the credit for it. Correct. Amen, Lori. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Well, this brings up um, two issues. And again, Lori, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. But I can't let you go without raising a couple of more uh, issues for you to respond to. One is um, just briefly why 
and, and, and maybe someone is doing this and maybe someone has already started it and we don't know about it. But you'd think that in retrospect, after you, you know, we're at a point now where we can look back at both conflicts, you know, have more or less come to an end and we can look back at them. Why isn't there a, um, it, like a pin for if you served as a lioness or an FET or a cultural sports team, why, why isn't there a special recognition for it? Well, it never occurred to anybody to, to, to ask for it. Um, okay. And, you know, the Army had to make a change. In, they used to give a combat action, well, I think they still do, in the infantry, there was a special award for somebody who'd actually been in combat. Yeah. And on, a lot going on in the Army, because a, a lot of men were also being thrown into combat who hadn't been through combat training. You know, people like uh, mm -hmm. people that were the cooks or the whatever found themselves there too. And they were in a unit with certain men getting the combat action badge or ribbon, whatever it is, but they didn't, even though they were in the same unit doing the same thing. And the same applies to a lot of the women who were lionesses. Some of the men probably they got combat action and the women didn't. The army finally had to come out with another combat action ribbon, not the infantry one, but at least one that said combat. Um, right. But that didn't take place until about halfway through the wars. Okay. Well, I guess it's uh, maybe there's still hope it's something that could be addressed at some uh, future point because I feel that the further that we away we get from Iraq and Afghanistan, the the role anyone who played in the role uh, or served as in the roles of a lioness and FET or a cultural support team, um, like that's going to go down in history as 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 playing a very specific role not only in the conflict but in sort of the forward movement of women in the services and what they can do and what they can contribute so um and then i can't let the i can't let our time together end without asking this question unless shannon if you have any questions jump in I don't want to hold you back. No, you're good, Daria. Okay. Because this is, so I have to bring up Taylor Sheridan's show. Oh, yes. I, and I have two questions. Two questions. One is the, so with the cultural support teams, you know, they were, they are the, really the group that is operating with the special ops whether it's the Rangers, the Berets, the Seals. Yes. And the basis for Taylor Sheridan's show, forget the name for a second, is um, just that the, there's a Marine who gets the, uh, the CIA, uh, goes in and, and finds a Marine to use as an asset and they, the, the, the CIA has started their own lioness program. So everybody wanted to get on board, I guess. But they started their own and, and they called her a lioness and it's more contemporary. But how, and, and so a lot of the press has, in reviewing the show has been, well, what's, you know, what's 
what's the realistic basis of this show? What's the inspiration? How true was it? And so as far as we know, the cultural support teams being in special ops is as far as the public knows of the connection. Was there a private program that the CIA had going where they called women lioness and used those lioness assets to go out and undercover and do things? Does that um, seem plausible? It's plausible, but I don't know that it happened. Uh, if it has, it stayed very well buried. Uh, but the CIA certainly and other intel people were certainly over there operating. But I never heard even a, a, a little whisper about a CIA program like that. Although, as I said, people like the, the British and the Australians had them. Um, but you know, I, I've looked at a few of those episodes and it, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, like, uh, I used to go to move, submarine movies with a, a guy who had been a submariner and he would get up and leave halfway through because frankly, it's, it's entertainment, it's not real. But the scary thing is that people watch it and think it's real and that that reality, that false reality erases the real accomplishments of the women who wore lionesses and FETs and CSTs. And it's particularly since they use the term lioness, they, it would have been better if they could call them tigresses or something so that there couldn't be any, any confusion. That's right. And I think that, um, and Shannon, you can speak to this, but that's what uh, I think what a lot of the ill feeling that has been provoked by the use of that title, the application of that title on this show, which wasn't, you know, wasn't necessary, but um, clearly the word lioness had military currency, um, but, you know, it didn't sit well with women who had served in that capacity for one of its iterations. Absolutely and, not. And myself and my counterparts all pretty much feel the same about that, Daria. I mean, here we were, uh, started a program that a lot of people really tried to bury. Um, they really tried to, I mean, here we are 20 years later, and like Lori spoke to earlier, there's this thing called the Combat Action Badge, which is assigned to females. It is supposed to be equal to the Combat Infantry Badge, which is only assigned to male counterparts. Um, and I think it's funny, 20 years later, here they are making an, a show about it. Um, and we're still fighting for benefits and we're still fighting for, for the rights to even be acknowledged. I mean, we were over there doing it. It wasn't being talked about. It was actually actively trying to be covered up. And then all of this comes out and I mean, where are we now? How is it any different today? And you're going to choose Lioness as your title? I mean, we're all still really jaded about that. I'm not sure about the rest of the females. Um, I know I never got, it's funny, we started the program, but yet I still don't have that combat action badge. <laughs> it's craziness. Wow. And it's nowhere IDD214 either. So. Right. I don't think it was retroactive. Uh, that's my understanding, yeah. but I, I uh, otherwise all of you could have applied for it and gotten it. Um, right. 
actually said that to me once. They were like, "Oh yeah, you were a lioness. Where's your cab? Where's your cab badge?" And I was like, yeah. "Got me there." It's funny. We actually, my unit actually started it, but nope, <laughs> it's not retroactive. I can't have one. Right. And you know that that it would be interesting to get to to find somebody in Congress that would be willing to take on that battle. Um, and maybe I'll suggest that uh, to some of the groups that work on service women's issues to make, you know, we, we made um, the WASPs veterans retroactively. Why can't mm -hmm. we award uh, a cap to those on the lionesses who did what people now earn that badge for before it was a badge? I think that would be a good thing for us to take up with Congress. There's going to be thousands of females that have been left out in that aspect, Lori. Yeah, thousands. and that's fine. Then and they earn that badge, they ought to get it retroactively. I think I, I'm going to talk to some people about that. Can't guarantee yes, any success, but I will take that on, Shannon. I think you've given me uh, something that needs doing. Um, you know, wow. if if it's gonna if we can get that going, that would be amazing because that's going to retroactive lots of females. And that's lots of, that's thousands of female stories that fall on deaf ears because if you don't have the proof in your record, they literally think you're just lying and making stuff up. I don't know any male that goes to the VA and says, hey, I was in combat. And they're like, prove it. You're a liar. <laughs> Right. They happen, just you know? no. Your sexist is all the proof you need. I think, uh, yes. and the law. I think the law says that. And that's uh, how it goes when you're teamed up too. I mean, as long as you know you're another male counterpart, they already see you as fit for the bill, and they think you're, you're capable and proficient at your job. But you show up as a female with some boobs, you don't know what you're doing. Right, uh, you have to prove it, and the other guy has to screw up before he's discredited. And I mean, majorly screw up. Yes, it would be amazing if someone, um, if we could get somehow some traction on, on this. And I will just say, having when um, Meg and I started working on Lioness, we were thinking about it, two thousand three started working on it more 2004 um but and then we finally finished the film in 2008 but looking back just as someone who was learning about this and looking back now really uh 20 years later from when we the idea first started to germinate um it's amazing on the one hand how little progress in some ways has been made on that. I mean, yeah, because in 2009 we were up on the hill talking to anyone and everyone who would listen. Yeah, I mean, the big change in 2013 was that women were finally allowed to be to be in the infantry in an all ground combat uh, designators or whatever you call them occupations and in all ground combat units. But the women who did that before, who pioneered it, who proved women could handle themselves very well indeed, have been left out of the picture. And their history hasn't yeah. come out. We need, we need, you know, the Lioness documentary is one of the few things that captures it. And uh, 
it may be the only thing that really captures it. Right. Well, um, Lori, I want to thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and your experience, because I feel like at touching ground, touching base with you at this midpoint in the podcast, it really gives us a perspective of, you know, where we where we are in this sort of evolution, these iterations, because I've always seen like the lioness to the FETs to the cultural support teams is just over the arc of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan as, you know, there's an evolution there. Um, they're not the same, but they're, one came, one evolved, one idea helped evolve another, I would say. Yes, and the standard and, of performance set by the women lionesses also was part of that. The fact that they could do it, that they did it well, led on to the next opening. And we, they need more, they need a lot more recognition than they've gotten. They absolutely do. But thank you so much, Lori. I really appreciate it. This has been an invaluable hour. Uh, and just the context that you've been able to provide as we now will continue with our episodes um, on the FETs and the cultural support teams. Um, just been fantastic because I think now that we have a we have a better echo chamber to continue to go through this history as well as we can on on this podcast. So thank you, thank you very much for joining us for this hour. It's my honor to be here with you and, and Shannon too. Hey, great. Lori, it was great catching up with you. You you uh you always got the right words and you never stop you never stop fighting for for soldiers and females in general. And I can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. If there's anything I can do to help, you know, with getting something in our service record, you have my email now. Please email I me do. anytime. We'll well, and it's great touching base with you again, Shannon. It's it's an honor to, to, to hear your voice. I'll tell you, you were one of the primary leaders of this and uh, thank you. Yes, ma'am. And I just, I just have to reiterate that because as someone coming from outside and trying to find out what was going on for all the years that I was doing the, uh, with Meg, the research on the film and, and finding out what's going on, everything came down when you ever had a question that it was like, well, if no one else knows it, we're going to ask Lori. And you were, you really, you know, you really held this whole thing together. I feel like you were the, the, the touch base for all of this and for so many of many of us finding out about it and for and for uh for people in the VA trying to figure out what was going on and thank you so much because it was a it you've actually it was a service beyond your service <laughs> that you continued really, your entire life so thank you so much well and, I remember um, yeah, I remember meeting you and Meg over at the Smithsonian Institute cafeteria one Saturday when we started talking about this. So, and you guys carried through with it. It was great. <laughs> I know. Well, that's once we got an idea in our head, that was it. But <laughs> anyway, so we'll we'll catch up another time. But thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you, Shannon and and Sean. Yes, ma'am. You have a good day. You too. Bye. So episode five, um, I love these titles, Truth is the Shrewdest Lie. Okay, 
so that's after Cruz uh, wakes up and she was her team had rescued her after she was almost um, uh, sort of date raped. She had been given mm-hmm. a date rape drug, and then she was saved. So she gets separated because her team has to go in and rescue her from that. While the uh, Nadia and her group like leave quickly when it gets too quiet. But the the real drama is at home when Joe's daughter gets in that car accident. Right. Which seems, um, and then you find out she's pregnant. And I do, I got to say, there's a, in every episode, there's there's a major female drama, either mm-hmm. attempted rape or you're getting pregnant. Anyway, you can't, there's not just a mission. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, no, definitely. I have. um, I mean, it makes for good television drama, I suppose. But but I like how they show I do like how they show the fact of their roles don't just stop when the end of the day rolls around. I mean, they they have to continue on until their home life and they have to be able to be there for their job and be there and be there for their families at the same time. Zoe Zaldana's character, she's she's torn between being full time but not full time for her mission and taking care of her home life. And unfortunately, you can see how that plays out. It comes down to the dad to really set the rules. And and one at one point he says, "I sacrificed the top to save the bottom." Um, right. I mean that you know that really just it just kind of hits you know it it makes you think no and i mean it's the constant um like you're you know when you're when you do return home it's like extremely intense and then when you're off on assignment it's also extremely intense and so there's kind of no let up ever absolutely and for and, uh, for the females, there's no time. There's no time for them to to stop and take a break and gather themselves. It's from one mission into their home life mission. That's right. Um, and then on, well, and then they. I I thought it was interesting. I mean, it. They are amplifying the plot when um, everyone, and and they take cruises conveniently back with the team, and they go on that mission where they find a terrorist in a house in San Antonio and they basically take everyone out. And um, I was trying to figure out then in episode six, because when they get called on the, I thought this was very interesting in episode six, they get called on. uh, So then they have the snatch that was in episode, in an earlier episode where they, they had to uh, capture a, a prisoner who was being transported and then they have the San Antonio um where I guess they had to blow up the house because of the uh explosive and so then they have that meeting um I guess it's with the CIA director or something Mm -hmm. but afterwards Caitlin uh Nicole Kidman's character and Zoe Joe's Zoe Saldana's character they don't trust what's going on there Mm-hmm. They don't. 
they don't, there's something, it, they leave you with the sense that something is, uh, they're not being told, they don't have, they're being told stuff, but it's not the, there's something else going on. I'm um, not that they would expect to be told everything, but there's, there's, it doesn't make any sense why they're there, why they're going on the mission. But Zoe Saldana's character says something interesting. She, she says that if the lioness can't sort of take out the terrorist funder who she's supposed to be getting to, then um, they're just gonna order some kind of strike and take out everybody. Oh, and the lioness will just be a casualty. Right. I don't know if you caught that, but I thought that was a I, bit wild. I did. I did. She she literally Zoe literally says that she's she's aware of her parameters and she's aware of the dangers that that taken on this mission might entail. It just goes it it's the same kind of feeling twenty years later that I that I had in two thousand three, you know. Um it kind of coincides with the same feeling that we all experienced over there. Here we are doing this, but it's being lied about, like we're not doing it. So would our sacrifice even matter? And I mean, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm I'm gonna wait and, and see. Uh, so they have, we have now two more episodes. It's, you know, stuff really gonna have to happen in the next two episodes to resolve this, at least for the first season, I guess. Um, and and then of course, uh, Nadia and Cruz have that moment at the end uh, where I guess Nadia is so, uh, like on the one hand, it seems a little contradictory. She's screaming with joy when she finds out she's getting married in Mallorca, which is of course what everyone wants to know is where's the wedding. So that, cause that's where Right. Presumably, Cruz is going to be able to get access for her target. But the night before, Nadia was so depressed when she got married, she'd have to return to Riyadh and basically be hidden away as a married woman, like no longer able to come out and have fun, apparently. Uh, and so <laughs> there's that moment where. Cruz and um, Nadia just both kind of come together like they've never found love. They've never found the kind of comfort in another human being that they've sought, but then they find it briefly in each other, but then Nadia pulls away. Right. Um, I think that was a real come to Jesus meeting there. Um, and I think Cruz realized that She's going to have to make some on-the-fly decisions. I mean, that was a moment she had to, to react in. And, I mean, as a lesbian, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, I think she got more than what she bargained for on that. Well, um, I I agree with you on that because I'll just um, – we can probably end this on uh, on the note that that last look on – the episode six ended with Cruz, Cruz's face just looked completely like with a certain kind of terror, like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
I think she just inserted, got inserted even deeper. Say the least. I'll say. I'll say. All right. Well, I think we've reached the end of this episode. Um, thank you, Shannon. So glad you were back to join us this week. And um, I um, I loved having Lori on. Oh, she's, she's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Thank you for everything, Sean. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Um, please uh, like and share uh, this podcast wherever you can on across your social media. You can go on to YouTube. Uh, and if you're on there, please subscribe, ring the bell. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. If you have any thoughts or questions or comments about the Lioness Origin Story podcast, and we will be back with another episode of Lioness uh, in the near future uh, with more special guests. Uh, Daria and Shannon, thank you both so much. Uh, this it, It's so educational and so historic, this podcast. I'm so happy that we're able to be a part of it. Thank you, Sean. Bye. Thank you. Um, Bye.